Once again, we're here at uh, Ninja Tune HQ, and this time with the company of Portico. We're here to talk about your new album, Living Fields, and as usual, we'll hear some of the music that has inspired you over the years. With your new album, Living Fields, much is being said about a more electronic sound with this album. Uh, does it feel new to you, or just sort of a natural evolution from previous work? It's quite a big change in direction, and so it does in a lot of ways feels like a new project. Um, but then, you know, obviously it's a reflection of our development and interests in the last few years, um, which I think have probably changed, have changed quite a lot. So there's definitely, yeah, you know, it's definitely feeling, it feels quite fresh for us and like new territory, really. What was the sort of driving force and inspiration for this? direction um, I think we got to a point with the last three well with the last albums that we felt we'd you know really sort of explored um, quite a lot with our like acoustic electronic setup and I think we I think we just felt like we wanted to challenge ourselves quite a lot um, we had a few changes in personnel in the band Ikea left and we spent a while trying to find a new way of writing. We spent probably about a year and didn't. It, we did a few things, but we don't. You know, we weren't actually that happy with them. And then, after about a year, we decided that we um, you know, we were kind of either going to stop doing it or maybe just start something completely fresh. We were like, well, what should we? You know, what should we do? Should we keep it going or should we like? And we were, because we hadn't been that successful, I don't think, in that year of experimenting. And then we were like, right, let's give it one last go and let's try something really fresh that we're, or fresh for us, that we're uh, really interested in. What kick-started that decision to carry on? I think it was, yeah, because we, we got to a point, like Jack said, where we, um, we were kind of questioning whether we wanted to carry on doing it anymore. I don't think anyone was really enjoying it that much. Um, and yeah, and the kind of all the all the stuff we'd kind of experimented with that year hadn't really been particularly sort of successful. Um, and yeah, and I remember just, there was one day when we just met up and we all kind of like had it out <laughs> in a way. I think the only way we could really see ourselves carrying on was just to do something kind of completely new, almost yeah, like starting a new band again. Really, you know, it's like kind of that re-beginning and just yeah, trying trying to do something like Jack said about uh, that sort of challenged ourselves and you know and our, and our, our approach to making music together As I lay lying to the limit of my chain I stand and pivot a perfect circle Mauve, midnight blue, brown and purple Your fading gift that remains With a temperature of 103 our temperature my cheek
you also dropped quartet from uh, Portico Quartet. Was it important as, as this new direction or was it just practically because you were no longer four? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's funny because I guess with all the singers on the album, we're kind of four again. But no, I mean, the band is just me, Jack and Milo. Uh, yeah, I think it, it was it was important. It was an important step. You know, we, I mean, in some ways we could have just changed the name of the band completely, I think. Um, but I, I guess just you know, given our sort of shared history together, it felt it felt right to keep it called Portico. And, and what is that history? Where where did it all start? Yeah, so we all kind of met in London um, about ten years ago, probably now. That's yeah. We all met at university, like we were at different unis, and um, we're kind of two sets of old friends. Me and Nick, who's now. No, no longer part of the band and Jack and Milo who are friends from Southampton and we all Jack and Nick met at uh, SOAS which is University of London and me and Milo were sort of the respective um, friends of, the, of those two and yeah we all just kind of started make, you know busking and making music together and it was just a very natural easy transition to sort of turning it into something what were you all listening to? Did you all have similar musical tastes at that time? I wouldn't say there's actually anything that unified about it. Like, I think we all listened to quite different stuff. But maybe that was a good thing, because we kind of exposed each other to, to you know, new new bits. Like, you know, I'd never heard music for 18 musicians until, until that time. Um, and I remember, like, Jack and Milo playing a lot of Jeff Buckley and stuff like that, actually, which I'd never heard before as well. I guess it's just that time when you're when you're that young, when you're kind of like 19, 20, you're just sort of sharing stuff. You mentioned Steve Wright there, and uh, you've all brought in some music to play, and Jack, I believe that was one of your choices. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, um, it's an album, actually, or like one piece of work, Music for 18 Musicians, but the track that I brought in or the section from the piece is called Pulses which is the first first piece and it's just a sort of flavour of the um, of the piece of work um, but that was this was one of the I guess the things the, one of the pieces of music that we all really enjoyed and was quite formative in making our our early stuff in particular yeah okay so. I want to have a listen to Steve Reich and Pulses from uh, Music for 18 Musicians Thank you. 
I'd like to go back a bit further and uh, find out when those seeds of music were first planted. Milo, do you want to tell us about your early musical experiences? So uh, I got get, uh, given the cello when I was uh, about eight. I started playing that and, you know, just learning and then uh, started... Um, I always wanted to play the double bass because I just thought, like, I just thought it looked cool. So it's purely on looks, first of all. And then, um, yeah, then I started playing, like, bass guitar, started, like, forming bands in school and got into jazz and played in, like, a big band uh, in Southampton um, with Jack, actually, because we both grew up in Southampton. And, yeah, so the jazz opened up many kind of, like, doors into the whole other spectrum of, of music and then started making my own bands like just kind of weird kind of fusion music um, and yes yeah, studied music in Goldsmiths University for three years more as an excuse just to be up in London and just to kind of play and that's what we ended up doing is uh, meeting uh, other friends from university and then playing um, uh, on the weekends busking just to earn more money than a bar job would allow us so we ended up doing that quite a lot and that's kind of where the band Portico Quartet started and yeah kind of did that for like like eight nine years and then now we're here. Jack uh, what about your formative years growing up? Well, I, th I remember I got in, probably got into playing the saxophone for the same reasons that Milo got into playing double bass. Is that I thought it looked, did look quite cool, <laughs> and I um, yeah I did. And my, you know, my parents played quite a lot of jazz around the house as well, so I listened to that. But I, I remember the the one album that really um, I mean it's a, it's a, it's a, almost a bit of a cliche, but it's um, it is an absolutely great album. It's kind of blue by Miles Davis. And I used to, when I was about 15, I used to put that on when I went to sleep and sort of hoping that they like, it would drift into my subconscious and I'd become a great like, saxophone player when I woke up. And I'm not quite sure that happened, but it, um, but yeah, I was, I was really into that album and that really, like, I think, um, that was yeah, really influential. And then, yeah, you know, the, like, my sort of chronology is the same as Milo's. And Duncan, uh, where, where did it all start for you? It starts with my dad, really, and he... I'll probably just give my mum some credit too, but my dad being a bass player, kind of... I just remember having... I got some of my earliest memories are kind of having a little toy drum kit, and just I remember breaking a couple of them, and eventually kind of like moving up through the ranks and getting a sort of miniature, proper drum kit. Um, and yeah, I used to like play with, um, it's funny, my brother sent me a recording the other day, he'd found some old cassettes of me and my dad playing. Me just, he's singing Teardrops Will Fall on the guitar, and I'm just clattering away in the background. Just absolutely out of time ruining it. But, and then kind of when I got a bit older, we used to play just Motown, and my dad was in a band playing just like, just for fun, just playing classic old R&B and stuff and um, yeah no, then I used to we, we used, to, used to play along at home and just mess around really it was great my dad my dad's a bit of a gear sort of gear head and I was always able to mess around in it and it was just you know none of it was like expensive or like you know 
gear but it was just there was like a four track there and a kind of keyboard and stuff and I used to just mess around and I guess if I think about it and trace it back it's yeah I was always kind of into that sort of technical side of stuff and you know I'd put some drums into a tape and then try and play along on the keyboard and then you know play the helicopter sound along with it yeah, but that kind of stuff is messing around. And then as I got older as well, I got into sort of making sort of music on the computer when I was got Fruity Loops when I was in my, like when I was sort of 16 or something. I remember getting Fruity Loops and being amazed and making beats and stuff. And then that kind of led me back weirdly to my dad's sort of record collection and like that um, Jack Apostorius again, because my dad was a bass head, so he was kind of into Jacko and starting to discover that stuff from looking for samples, you know, because I guess that's the first place I reached out to is the things that were immediately at hand, and that was, you know, like Weather Report and Jacko and stuff. So, yeah, and then it kind of got back into playing drums again with these guys when, when I moved to London. Should have another listen to one of the tracks you've brought in. Uh, Milo, do you want to tell us a little bit about your choice? Yeah, the tune's called uh, Aconcole y Trompa uh, by Jaco Pastorius. It's on his self-titled album. And I just really like it because I think I really dug it when I was like 15. It's just all harmonics on the bass. And this really kind of quick fluttering kind of like movement with the bass and the conga and then there's this, this kind of French horn which just like sails over the top and I just thought it was really cool.
Okay, well, going, going back to you, uh, your album, Living Fields, uh, briefly sort of mentioned, you, uh, you're joined by three guest vocalists on the album, Jonah McCleary, Jamie Woon, and uh, Joe Newman from Alt-J. Tell me about how these collaborations came about. Um, I've known Joe, the singer from Alt-J, for about, I don't know, like ages, maybe 20 years or something, because he lived down the road from me um, in Southampton where I grew up, lived two or three doors down. And um, yeah, they used to rehearse in my loft upstairs in Southampton. So I heard all these tunes that were like, this is with my my brother. Um, and so all these tunes that are now like quite, quite big, they used to, you know, like 10 years ago, they were playing them up in... <laughs> in my loft but so um, yeah so and you know he was really into the band and I think there was a mutual like respect and enjoyment of each other's music and uh, then we yeah when we started working on this album we were and we were kind of thinking about working with singers we just um, I got in touch with Joe and asked him if he'd like to do a few tracks and he was really up for it um, yeah so that's how that happened and then Jamie Woon we all lived with for uh, a couple of years so, um, and uh, you know good mates with him and always wanted to do something and again it was just you know like a mutual sort of enjoyment of each other's music um, and we'd always you know we'd always talked about doing something but never actually made it happen did it come about with uh, John O. McCleary? We used to do these nights and did a few festivals with a like collective called One Taste and we knew him from there and we did a handful of gigs with him um, and then that was yeah someone we just got in touch with and we you know we'd known him through these gigs so there's a personal connection there and sent him some stuff and then we really liked what he was doing and so it just yeah happened from that really. When a road leads To the living fields Where light glows Throughout every home Thank you. 
Historically, you haven't had a lot of guest vocalists. Was the creative process a lot different this time as you were sort of working alongside vocalists? Yeah, it was um, in the band's original incarnation. It was kind of, we would always pretty much just through write everything and sit in our studio and get the tracks together that way just by just playing together and then finding bits we liked and revising it and kind of going back and honing in on specific parts or sections and you know playing in a much more of a band kind of way or like yeah because I guess it was all acoustic instruments whereas this time we kind of write ideas into the computer you know whether that's a start with a synth or some pattern from a drum machine or something anything really um, we did actually do some some kind of like live playing together and we record everything in and then dissect it and take it apart but in general it was made a lot we'd start with kind of like patterns and stuff and then extrapolate from there send something basic out to someone we could imagine doing something you know one of the singers Send them a very like basic structure, just much more of a, a tone or a mood really, uh, and then if they were feeling it, they could send us a little something back, and it's a bit bit more back and forth.
it feels very cohesive as an album considering there's three different vocalists you know they've all got different voices but they all seem to complement each other were you conscious of that and who you I mean obviously you've kind of friends and you knew knew who they were but did you still think okay these three is going to work with these three it's funny because I think we worried about that quite a bit when we we're making it you know um, wanting it to be a cohesive piece of work and not just a you know not just um, a group of tracks a bunch of tracks already just grouped together under under an album but no we, we want to make it a cohesive sort of statement and body of work and but I think as always there's a you know sometimes you just follow intuition and things fall into place a bit because I think you know as we were going along we kind of we, we did talk about how the voices relate to each other and so you know in Joe and Jono for example have got quite different sort of approaches to singing and ways they use their voice but but I think actually it, it yeah it's kind of worked they sort of they complement each other in a in different ways you know their 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 styles are kind of different but it works yeah um, let's pause there then and um, maybe you can play us another track um, that's been an inspiration for uh, for you over the years. The tune I'm going to pick is called Symbol Rush by Tom York from his, I think it's 2006 album, The Eraser. And yeah, I guess it was, it, it was one of the, this is one of those moments when you, it's really nice to hear something made of quite uh, sort of mechanical, like with drum machines and stuff like that. As I guess it's a drummer, but a really sort of expressive piece of music. Um, it's not, you know, obviously there's hundreds of songs that, that do that, but particularly, I don't know, that, that album, for some reason, it really chilled, it meshed together the, the acoustic sort of sounds that he was using and a lot more of the sort of rigid drum uh, machines at patterns to sort of really nice effect.
obviously with this album, I'd like to know how, how long it took with this new direction. Did it become a, a longer time in the studio working on it? Um, and which track was finished first and which track you struggled on? Um, I guess overall it took about two years. I think the f- song that was finished first was actually 101. Um, that was, we had that in the bag kind of quite early actually, weirdly, before really <laughs> knew what we were doing. But um, yeah, what did the, the hardest song was probably, I'd say it's probably Where You Are, which is a song with John McCleary singing. And that went through, like, that was one of the first songs when I think we really started to find a bit of direction to the album and a bit of shape and I think we got the tone right on that first one, on, on that song. That was the first one, it's something started to emerge. But yeah, it, it went through, not hundreds, but we worked on it a long time, a long time and it just couldn't quite get it right and then in the end did something kind of totally different, really really took all the music away and started again. Let's do another another track that you brought in. I brought in a track by Arthur Russell called uh, "Soon to Be Innocent Fun." It's just a cello voice and a delay pedal, and um, it's got this really beautiful kind of freedom to it, and this is really personal and intimate as well. But I just really like the kind of the sense of sort of the freedom of the timing in it, and I like that element in it. Yeah. 
where did the name Portico come from? Um, it came from a festival we were playing in Italy. And at the time, yeah, I think we, I think we must have been called. Well, we didn't even really have a name at that point. Um, and we were playing, supposed to be playing in this like square. In this, it was in a little village called Castelvecchio, which is just outside of Bologna. Um, and we were supposed to be playing in this little square, but then it started to rain, and we had to move the gig to uh, there's a little portico. Which, in case you don't know, a portico is like a sort of architectural structure where a, it's like you know at the front of the White House or um, you know UCL was that big portico out the front. Um, and so we played in under this portico and then some of the local people called us like the portico quartet and so we just <laughs> quite like the sound of it as well let's go now to the final track from the selection you brought in and yeah tell me a little bit about why you chose this particular piece of music the track i'm going to play is called an ending ascent by brian eno and it's one of his better known ambient pieces, I'd say. But uh, yeah, it was. I guess it's kind of important because it was. I think it was one of the when I bought that album Apollo, um, and it's pretty much the first time I'd sort of really listened to ambient music, you know. Um, and yes, yeah, I loved it. I, you know, fell in love with Brian Eno kind of instantly. I love everything about the way he approaches music and he talks about it and he's yeah it's just fantastic but but that piece as well is just uh yeah it's beautiful and i remember listening to it actually we went to australia to to play on tour and being really jet lagged and listening to that on repeat and it would kind of fit the mood perfectly so yeah Tell us what's what's coming up for, for you guys. I, I presume a tour is in the making, and um, are we going to see any of the vocalists present on stage? Yeah, we're just in rehearsals now for our upcoming tour. Um, 
I'm playing in London at the Village Underground as part of Convergence Festival um, on the March the 18th. And then we've got a little bit of a gap uh, for a few weeks and then we're off on a on quite a big European sort of stint, going to quite a lot of cities around, yeah, we're on Europe and the UK as well. Um, and we'll be joined by John McCleary, who's kind of joined the band as a live member. So he makes, he makes it all possible, really. Well, thanks very much for coming down. Cheers. And uh, good luck with the tour. The album Living Fields by Portico is out on Ninja Tune on the 30th of March. again to Portico for dropping by and now we turn our attention to some of the new releases from the Ninja Tune family of labels and we start with the Quodo remix of Anne River for Dorian Concept and that's from the Join Dens remix EP which is on Ninja Tune.
Roseanne River by Dorian Concept, remixed by Quado. Up next, it's Mercury Prize winners Young Fathers with a track called Shame, which is from their new album, White Men Are Black Men Too, and that's coming out on Big Dada. Big Dada Artists, Young Fathers, with a track called Shame. Now it's a new track from veteran Ninja Tune artist, Yaga Yagist, and a track called Oban.
Oban by Yaga Yagist, and that's coming out on Ninja Tune. Next we have Howling, a new signing for the counter label, and it's a track called Signs. How won't you see goodness inside? How won't you shadow cast aside? How won't you go to be in bloom? Your soul to make me new. Give me signs, signs, signs. Make me colorblind. Take my time. was Signs by Howling and we move on to their label mates Marabou State and their latest track Rituals. Mm-hmm. 
That was Rituals by Marabou State on Counter. And look out for their forthcoming album, Portraits. That's it for the Ninja Tune podcast with myself, DK. Many thanks to assistant producer Tom. And we'll be back again with another episode soon. <laughs>